Let's take our Bibles, shall we, and turn to John chapter 20. We're moving towards the end of our studies in John's Gospel. We've come to this very familiar story of Thomas, Jesus and Thomas. Now, I don't know if you are aware of a sport very popular among biblical commentators. The sport is, let's try to explain what was wrong with Thomas. Doubting Thomas. He gets that name, doesn't he? Doubting Thomas. And there have been various attempts. It seems to me, wherever you go, you find these attempts to try and psychoanalyze. You know, when there's something wrong with someone, we're always wanting to find an explanation. Isn't that right? Somebody is looking a bit down, and you want to know what's going on. And in your mind, you're concocting a number of scenarios or stories in your head to explain why it is that today they're not smiling, or that today they've walked past you. Well, maybe they've fallen out with you, maybe they're ignoring you, or, or whatever. You come up with a, a little story, a narrative, an explanation as to what is wrong. We do this all the time with one another, and we do it particularly when it comes to poor Tom. And uh, I, was, I came across a number of things just in preparation for this evening that kind of highlight this particular sport. A man called Thomas Moore from Richmond, Virginia, and later from Nashville, Tennessee, 19th century scholar or biblical scholar says this, Thomas was a man of gloomy spirit, prone to look on the dark side of everything and live in the shade. There is little about him that's bright, sunny, or hopeful. Hence, he was not as ready to believe the good news as he was to believe the bad. The frigidity of his temperament made him skeptical, hasty in coming to unfavorable conclusions. Then John MacArthur puts it like this, Thomas was a somewhat of a negative person, a worrywart, a brooder, tended to be anxious and angst-ridden. He was like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh. He anticipated the worst all the time. It gets worse. J.I. Packer, in one of his books, uh, says, reminds us, or perhaps tells you, if you haven't heard it before, that uh, Thomas, of course, was also called Didymus. The word Didymus means, uh, is Greek for a twin. The name Thomas is Hebrew for a twin. And uh, we wonder who the other twin was. He may have been one of the other apostles. We don't know, maybe it was Matthew or James, at least G.I. Packer, speculates. But he comes to the conclusion that he was one of two and that he was probably the less bright of the two, and that he lived with some kind of inferiority complex about the fact that he was less bright than the other twin. Now, you're asking yourself, as I am, where on earth do they get the evidence for these kind of conclusions? It's as if poor old Thomas is a psychologist's dream. And all of these speculations are based on the slimmest evidence you could possibly imagine. And uh, as we come to it this evening, I, I'm, I'm going to try and, and put to one side all attempts to speculate and psychologize, because the Bible does not allow us to do it. I think 
Old John Calvin has a fairly good rule of thumb that we should not go beyond what the Bible says, really. We should just stick to what the Bible clearly teaches. So I want to do that tonight as we do this story of Doubting Thomas. And I want you to notice the first thing about Thomas is that he was absent when the Lord was present. We're told that right at the very beginning. It was uh, another, it had been about eight days, really, since the Lord Jesus had risen from the dead. Eight days since that first Lord's Day of the first day of the week, Lord's Day, when he had come, you remember, to the disciples in the upper room, and he had shown them his hands and side. Now, it's interesting that the Lord was very conscious of the need for the apostles to have been eyewitnesses of His resurrection. He was very anxious that they know, because it was going to be their job to be the witnesses to us of the fact that He had risen from the dead. And so there was, in our Lord's mind, a great deal of concern that his disciples be firm and sure in their minds that it was him, that it wasn't a ghost, that he was there alive and that it was the same Lord Jesus, and that they could see the marks of the nails and of the spear, very anxious that he should come to them again and again and again during this six-week period in order to confirm in their minds absolutely that he had risen from the dead. That's what we've learned so far, really, to this point in the book. Uh, We've also had the Lord Jesus taking time in the evening to breathe on the disciples, especially the Holy Spirit, who was the Spirit of truth, who would bring back to their mind and memory the things Jesus had said, who would lead them into all truth, and eventually through them give us the Bible as we have it. All that's happened up until this point. But it's been eight days since that happened, and now we have Thomas, and Thomas has been hearing the news. He's been hearing the Lord was here. The Lord came. The Lord visited us. The Lord was present with us, and He was absent. He was absent. Now, can you imagine the speculation that goes in as to why He was absent? Was He just too depressed to come out? having seen the Lord Jesus crucified, dead, and buried. Was, was he uh, an introvert? And therefore, in, in a time like that, a time of emotional crisis and catharsis, he wanted to be on his own. He come up with, you can come up, you name the, the solution, and you can keep it for yourself. It, it, we come up with all of these reasons. But he'd missed the resurrection, that's true. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in one of his books, said, you know, He said, in fact, I heard him say this, we pray for revival, we pray for the outpouring of God's Spirit, and one day that revival may come. God may pour out His Spirit on His people. The way it has come in the past in phenomenal fashion, for example, in the middle of the 18th century, it came again in the middle of the 19th century, in the 1850s, and he says it could come again. Imagine revival breaking out. Imagine the Spirit of God coming down upon a congregation. And that was the Sunday night or the Sunday morning. You chose to stay home and watch television. That next episode of Madam Secretary, which will be there when you get home if you've taped it, or whatever it is we do nowadays rather than tape. 
You're not here. You're kicking yourself for the rest of your life. Thomas was absent, and maybe one of the lessons we learn from that is that we should not miss meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Now, I think in order to understand his absence, we should take a minute to, to find out what John has already told us about Thomas's character, in case we get it wrong. Back in chapter 10, for example, the Lord Jesus hears of the illness of His friend Lazarus. Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, who lived in Bethany near Jerusalem. By this time, the Lord has gone quite far away. He's across the Jordan River. He's many miles away from Jerusalem. He's gone there to stay out of the hubbub that was going on around His ministry back near the capital. And news comes that Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, is sick. It's obvious from the gospel record that this home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus was a home that was very close to Jesus' heart. He went there a lot, and he, he found hospitality there a lot. And Jesus' reaction, you remember his reaction was, this sickness is not unto death. This sickness will not end in death, is what Jesus was saying. Well, then, you remember what happens. A second messenger comes. This time the news is Lazarus is already dead. And it's then that Jesus says, let's go to Bethany. Now, some of His disciples were wondering to themselves, why didn't He say that yesterday? We could have been there. But now that He's dead, He says, let's go to Bethany. And the disciples remind Him, we don't we don't really want to go anywhere near Jerusalem. Last time you were there, they tried to stone you. And it's at this point that Thomas interjects his words. Thomas says, let's go with him that we may die with him. Well, the psychologists burst in here. Again, those who like to psychoanalyze, and they say, well, I was, he was so depressed, pessimistic. He, he, he was just giving in to the inevitable and saying, well, let's go with him. He's determined to go. We'll go with him, and no doubt we will die with him. Unfortunately, we don't have the tone of voice described that Thomas has. All we have is his words. Jesus is determined to go there. They want to kill him there. They might kill him there, and in killing him, they may choose to kill us also. Is it not possible that Thomas is showing us some courage here, <laughs> some boldness here? The Lord's going to go. When the Lord says, let's go to Bethany, He's not actually asking us to vote on whether we go to Bethany. He's telling us we're going there. We're going to go back there. If we go back there, we're going into harm's way. Let's go with Him. And if we have to, let's die with Him. In other words, I think as far as Thomas is concerned, he's being realistic. Not so much pessimistic as realistic. This was a reality. It could happen. It might cost him his life. A little later on in John's Gospel in chapter 14, in the upper room, Jesus had said, you remember, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
And it's in that conversation that Thomas interjects again. He says to the Lord, he says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? We'll never get where you're going. We might lose our way in the way you're going. Here's a man who loves Jesus. Here's a man for whom the thought of Jesus going away anywhere destroys him. He's so anxious about the very idea that Jesus is somehow going somewhere and they're going to follow him. Will they get the right way? Will they get the right place? Will they get there in the end? He's concerned about that. He may not find Jesus anymore. He's a man who loves Jesus and who wants to be with Jesus wherever Jesus is. I want to put it to you that that is the one indisputable thing we know about Thomas. He loved Jesus. He wanted to follow Jesus wherever he went, and he wanted to be able to pay the price, whatever it might be, of being with Jesus. He was absent, and we must not speculate as to why he was absent. But this is what we know about Thomas so far. And whatever his reasons for his absence, it was his absence that meant that he was not there when Jesus came to visit. Well, then, secondly, we see his reaction. We see the unbelief. I think we can call it unbelief. Uh, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's fairly straightforward. Those are his own words. Jim Packer says that that is willful skepticism. I'm, I'm not sure that I can go along with, with that kind of radical, that kind of radical assessment of him, willful skepticism. I think it's a reasonable thing to say. He was being asked to believe something unbelievable. Now, on one hand, he should have believed what they said, shouldn't he? He should have believed what his colleagues as apostles were telling him. That's true. But I think Thomas understood, and we'll see in a moment why I think this, but I think Thomas understood precisely what was involved if what they said was true. That there was a step in his thinking about Jesus, there was a step that was so enormous, so radical, that only what they said, if it were true, would be grounds for making that next step in his understanding of who Jesus was. And so his unbelief, I think, we will see in a moment, betrays someone who is thinking through the implications of the news that he's received and who dare not make the next step in his thinking until he sees the evidence of the marks on Jesus. Because if what they say is true, you see, the one who was crucified, dead, and buried is omnipotent. He is almighty. 
There is nothing and not even death that can hold him and keep him down. And so he expresses his disbelief. Well, eight days later, verse 28, eight days later his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. This time he will not, he will not stay away. He's going to make sure he's there. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came. Now, remember I said before, Jesus does not go through doors. He does not go through walls. He has flesh and bone as we do. He appeared. He appeared in a kind of, from the heavenly realm, He appeared there amongst them, physically among them, uh, as they were in that upper room locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he did not hesitate. Having pronounced his peace upon his disciples, do you notice that immediately, immediately he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and reach here your hand and put it into my side and be not unbelieving but believing. Now, a number of things here going on in Thomas's mind. Jesus knew what I said. Jesus heard what I said, unless somebody went behind my back and told him. How could he have done that? He hasn't been here for the last week. He's been invisible, out of communication, and so on. But here he is, and he knows precisely what I said last week when they told me that he'd visited. He knows. Jesus knows. He knows not because someone told him, but because he knows our hearts. He reads our minds. He understands what's going on in our subconscious. Jesus knows what God knows, and which only God knows. He knows your thoughts. He knows your doubts. He knows your concerns. And Jesus immediately picks up on what was going on in, Judas's, in, in Thomas's mind, and he addresses the things that were on his mind. And you notice that immediately he draws attention to the evidence of the resurrection. He says to him, reach here, your finger, reach your hand, put it into my side. Now, I've said we mustn't be unduly critical of Thomas's concern about the evidence Jesus had appeared to the others in the upper room specifically to show them his wounds, specifically to demonstrate that it was he who was alive from the dead. This was important. It's important in light of what happens in the middle of this section as Jesus appears to them in the upper room and breathes on them and gives them the authority of the keys to proclaim the good news of the gospel, to proclaim the forgiveness of sins in His name. These apostles were going to be the ones who would lead the the charge and lead the church and be the foundation of what the church would believe and think and say about Jesus from this point onward. Their testimony would be crucial. The, the rest of us would believe in Jesus through their message as Jesus had prayed in chapter 17. So it was not un, out of order for Thomas to understand that seeing the evidence was necessary for him to occupy the role of an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
The apostle had to be an eye and ear witness to everything that had gone on in the saving career of Jesus on earth. And of all of these things, if Jesus had really risen from the dead, Thomas is bound to have understood that was absolutely monumental and critical for our understanding of who Jesus is. And so he's giving Thomas this empirical evidence for the resurrection. Again, the Bible doesn't denote for us there are no adverbs denoting the tone of voice that Jesus had when he says, reach here, reach here your finger, reach here your hand. Except, I think, the gentleness of Jesus. Thomas, this is what you wanted to see. This is what you asked for. I'm giving you what you asked for, Thomas. Reach out your hand. Reach out your finger. One of the attributes that we love about the Lord Jesus and admire so much about Him is His gentleness with us. He knows our faults. He knows our constitution. He knows what we are made of. He knows that even in spite of our sins, and He loves us nonetheless. He knew the complexities in Thomas's mind and heart. He knows the complexities in your mind and heart. He knows. And the heart of Jesus is large. He is compassionate towards us. And so Jesus shows him the wounds and says to Thomas, come now, don't come unbelievingly. Come with faith. Come to me. Trust in me. There are no lectures. He doesn't tear him apart or embarrass him in front of all the rest. There's no stern rebuke. There's no chastisement. Rather, he shows himself and says to Thomas, believe me, believe me. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And it's because of this that Thomas then reaches his conclusion. Look at what's said in verse 28. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God, do you understand the enormity of those words? For a Jew, for Thomas, had he been thinking about this through the week? Had he taken on board their claim that Jesus was alive after his passion? Had he been reflecting on those conversations back in that we have in chapter 5 of John's gospel? The Father has life in himself. He's granted the Son to have life in himself. People should honor the Son as they honor the Father. He'd spoken about the Father's glory and his glory. He had said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen the Father, seen me, you've seen the Father. Was he thinking all this through? Was he now wondering if what they've said is true, if what they've said is real, if Jesus has risen from the dead? He has demonstrated the omnipotence of the only God. He has demonstrated 
His almightiness. He is the almighty Lord. The only language that comes to him is language that he has obviously considered and contemplated in his mind as he's reflected on the events as they've unfolded and are unfolding before his eyes. My Lord and my God. What he encountered left him with only one word to describe Jesus, Lord and God. You find those words together like this in Psalm 35. Who could do what Jesus has done? Who could be pierced for our transgressions? crucified, dead, and buried, and then rise from the dead and be alive and now standing before Him. Who could do this? But only the Lord God of Israel. And for the first time, Jesus is addressed in the absolute sense as my God, my God. You remember from John's perspective, he has begun here, and in many ways he's taking us back to the beginning of his book. This is a crucial turning point in, in the gospel of John. This, this confession of Thomas's is absolutely vital to the, to the overall shape of the gospel. It turns our thoughts right back to the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was face to face with God in the beginning, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And here we are. We've watched the course of His life. We've seen the signs and demonstrations of His godness. And Thomas could have done a little rerun in his mind. What was it Jesus did? He walked on water. He stilled storms. He calmed the sea. He, he made food for multitudes. He turned water into wine. He raised the dead. He made the sick well. He made the, 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 the dumb speak and the blind see and the deaf hear. He did God things. Do you see? And he reaches his conclusion. The conclusion that John puts in these terms back in the prologue in verse 15, 14, we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten God, full of grace and truth. Thomas had seen the glory of Christ in His humanity, and through the things that He did, He saw beyond the humanity of Christ to His deity. My Lord and my God. And we have to understand this evening, this is so crucial to this book. Here is the high watermark of high Christology in the Gospel of John. And what brought them there? What brought it out? This high Christology was not something thought up by the fathers 300 years or so, 400 years later. This high Christology is here in the gospel, 
because these early apostles came to this conclusion. And here with this statement, my Lord and my God, John wants us to circle back to chapter 1, refresh our memory of the things that he, he said about, declared about the Lord Jesus, and understand that Thomas got it. Thomas got it. Jesus is God of God, very God of very God, begotten, not made, my Lord and my God. The resurrection opened his eyes to see what was truly happening in all the actions of Jesus throughout his life and ministry. And he got it. And he worshipped. And he worshipped Jesus. And he bowed to Jesus. A monotheistic Jew, he adored and confessed Jesus to be his Lord and his God. We don't get any higher than that. This man, Thomas, has been thinking. And maybe it was that very thinking, the implications as he thought them through, that made him reply to them, I, I can't make this move until I see the marks. Then I'll believe. I think in maybe in his head he's saying to these disciples, if what's happened is true, you know what you are asking me now to believe. Something bigger than I ever conceived I might be asked to be believed. That the identity of the God of Israel is such that I can say of Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. Thomas's confession is staggering in its implications. But then the passage ends with Jesus pronouncing a blessing. The blessing in verse 29 marks now the transition a transition. Jesus is teaching Thomas, a transition is coming. I've revealed myself to you, Thomas, and to the other apostles, but there's coming, a, there's coming a day when things are going to change. Have you believed because you've seen me? Yes, you have. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Is he condemning Thomas for believing because he saw? No. But he is saying a transition is taking place now. You've seen and you believed. But now that you've seen and believed, now that you are here to be one of those witnesses, an apostle who has seen these things on the basis of what you have seen and the message that you will preach, from now on, Jesus is saying, people will not see but on the basis of your testimony, they will believe in me. This is the great transition place that is happening. 
And one of the things that we learn here is that none of us knows the heavenly Word and Son of God other than in His descent and in the glory of His incarnate as the incarnate Word. It's because He came that we understand that He is the Son of the Father. It's by His coming that we understand that He is begotten by the Father. It's in His coming that we understand the Trinity with all the clarity that comes with Jesus' descent into our world. And from now on, people will come to believe without seeing, based on the apostles' witness. Because this transition leaves us not naked, not with nothing. This translation, this, this transition is going to leave us with a perfect revelation. The Scripture is a perfect revelation of God. It's all we need. It's all we need, this side of heaven, to know God. It is the perfect and final Word. These holy Scriptures give to us the knowledge we need to correctly think of God and to believingly embrace God in Christ by the work of the Spirit. And so, as we wind up thinking about this man, Thomas, don't be too hard on Thomas. After the day of Pentecost, Thomas left Jerusalem. He went north, and then he turned right into Syria and planted the Syrian church there. He kept going kept going east. He went to India. He planted the Martoma Church in India that survives to this day. He kept going. And modern historians think he got as far as China and planted a church in China. And somewhere after that, coming back perhaps, he was martyred. He never went home again. Thomas, our brother, and our apostle, our holy apostle, was used of God mightily. And what gripped him, what gripped him, what never left him, was that Sunday night when Jesus came and showed him his hands and his side. And Thomas fell before him and said, My Lord and my God. Let's pray together. Father, we, we pray that this evening as we've thought about your servant and above all as we've thought about our Savior, what a bold, what a radical thing it is for us to speak to you, Father, about your Son, with the help of your Holy Spirit, and in doing so, reflect on the fact that you have revealed yourself to us so clearly and fully in Christ, and have given us this Word, this Scripture, 
by which we can come to know you, Father, through Christ your Son, in the power of the Spirit, one God, our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.